Hello and welcome to another episode of Change One Thing, the show where we explore if tomorrow will really be what tomorrow will be. Again, it's Lani, and joining me for today's episode is Nicole Reinhardt, a professor of clinical psychology and the director of the Deakin Child Study Centre at Deakin University. Nicole is a passionate researcher and advocate for children with disabilities who has become an international leader in her field. Her research focuses on childhood neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism, Asperger's disorder, and ADHD. In 2013, she established the Deakin Child Study Centre to help make a real difference in the lives of children who face developmental challenges. This led to the creation of All Play Social Movement, a story which Nicole loves to share. She is the recipient of multiple research grants, has published over 120 papers and book chapters on the topic of developmental disorders, and has even given a TEDx talk. This is one impressive woman. Nicole's passion and energy is making a real difference in the community and in the lives of the families it impacts. It's time now for Change One Thing with Professor Nicole Reinhardt. Nicole, welcome. You are described as being a passionate researcher and an advocate for children with disabilities who has become an international leader in this field. What led you down this path originally? Oh gosh, um, I always wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I always wanted to be in the health profession. I come from a family where my, I think every female in my family is a nurse or works in health in some way. I grew up in the country, which was amazing, um, and you know, some I grew up in some country towns that um, weren't very prosperous, and I came from a great loving family, parents and a brother, um, but I saw a lot of children um, with disadvantage, and I saw a lot of children growing up who had disabilities um, who were particularly marginalised, and um, I think that stayed with me my whole mm. life. I remember being in grade four at Bensdale Primary School and having um, money to go to the tuck shop and, <laughs> um, you know, I think I've got licorice or something. Yeah, redskins. <laughs> redskins or something and I just, I just couldn't understand as a child how other children didn't have food to eat. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that even now when I say that it, it, it makes me sad and, it um, from a young age inspired me that I wanted to to do something that was going to improve the lives of, of other children so that you know, they had they had a best start to life. So I um, went to Monash University. I um, did my bachelor's and my honours in psychology, and um, then I went to um, back then most of the universities were what we called sort of rats and stats psychology. They had <laughs> a lot of experimental stuff, but um, they didn't have clinical training programs and Deakin University was um, trailblazing clinical psychology training pro programs and still is today. And so I left Monash and I went to Deakin and I did my master's in clinical psychology. I then started practicing as a clinical psychologist as an intern at Monash Medical Centre and met my first child or patient with Asperger's disorder. Mm. Um, so that was back in 1998 and Asperger's disorder had just 
been brought into the diagnostic manual in 1994, so we didn't know much. (laughs) And so with your research into neurodevelopment disorders such as autism, Asperger's, AHAD? ADHD, yep. AHD. uh, Tell us a little bit about this and what is sort of in really simple terms, how do they differ from one another? Because we hear these terms thrown around Mm -hmm. all the time now. Yeah, Right, so children, so we used to have two diagnostic categories, autistic disorder and Asperger's disorder, but from 2013, um, they were put together into autism spectrum disorder, so that's what we have now. Children with autism spectrum disorder have problems socially, they have problems um, relating socially, might have problems with eye contact, might have problems uh, reading the social play of a room, reading other people's minds and understanding what's going on. Um, they have communication difficulties and there's a real spectrum there. Some children um, develop language very well, in fact, develop language in a precocious way. Um, mm. Other children will have severe language delays. They're not saying single words at one and they're not putting words together in sentences by the time they're two um, and might go on to have quite limited language. Um And the other characteristic is what we call repetitive and stereotyped behaviours. So that can range from everything from an obsession with spinning things and um, hand flapping and motor mannerisms um, to a special interest, which might be a special interest in... I don't know. It could be. It could be anything. It could be collecting cars. It could be collecting a particular type of doll. Um, and with those special interests, you know, you might look at that and go, "Well, that's pretty normal. Children like collecting cars and dolls." But this is um, obsessive and intense mm. and unusual. And their recall on that, their knowledge about that special interest is usually incredible, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, when children get into a topic, they they immerse themselves into it um, and that's sometimes to the detriment of um, investing their developmental energy into other important things like making mm. friends and interacting socially because they're obsessed and preoccupied. Okay. And with so you see similarities between all three of them? So autism, so that was autism spectrum disorder, which yeah. is a spectrum of, of challenges. And then we have ADHD. Yes. Yes. So children with ADHD, um, they're characterised by their children who are described as being on the go. They're mm. very active and very active from a young age. Often mm. parents will say, you know, they didn't, they didn't crawl or walk. They started running. <laughs> um, yes. I actually had a cousin with uh, who was diagnosed with AHD mm-hmm. and uh, he did things like set fire to my grandpa's tractor. He like did all kinds of things and I, I just remember all the parents and even us, you know, as kids sort of standing around just no one knowing what to do mm. with this particular boy. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, when you say that kind of energy and they never stop, mm-hmm. so to speak, it's, mm-hmm. I really understand that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so it could be it could be that. Um, could also be um, problems with attention, being mm-hmm. in a bit of a fog, not quite switched on, not quite working mm-hmm. out. You know what to do, or it could be impulsivity, 
um, as well. So kids who are just making really impulsive decisions and so and and all of those symptoms can cl- cluster together. Mm. So in answer to your question, autism spectrum disorder and ADHD, it's a really interesting one because um, we talk about a neurodevelopmental spectrum. So these, these are all um, developmental brain conditions, um, but they do overlap. Mm. So about three quarters of children with autism also have clinical symptoms of ADHD. Okay. And then about a third of children with ADHD um, also have um, a comorbid or an overlapping diagnosis of autism. So they overlap. Okay. And then you've got Asperger's thrown in there. Mm -hmm. I actually thought up until yesterday it was Asperger's. Burgers, but it's actually a P. Asperger's, is yes. that correct? Yeah. Asperger's. And what do we, <laughs> what do we sort of see with that condition? So children, so we we don't actually diagnose children with Asperger's anymore. Um, okay. Now all the children are called autism spectrum disorder, um, but with Asperger's disorder, as it's tr- traditionally known, and sometimes we say formally would have been referred to as Asperger's, these children start life with good language skills, if not mm. precocious. In fact, their parents often think they're really gifted from a very young age and because their language skills are so amazing. And so they are, they're gifted in many ways. Mm. Um, but as they get older and into kinder and the primary years, what becomes apparent is that these children aren't relating the same way as other children are socially. Mm, okay. They're not reading the social play. They're not picking up on social cues. They're not they're not knowing necessarily what to do um, and how to interact and play like other children. So that that's probably the first thing that mm. will, will get picked up. Parents often say to me, and and they but then they're very bright. They're normally intelligent. They're very verbal, but they just it's not working well socially. And they also are very rigid and pedantic in the way that they're living their lives. Mm. And speaking of spectrum, we were talking about this pre-show as well. And I said, oh, Nicole, aren't we all a bit on the spectrum? (laughs) (laughs) And you turned around and said, well, no, we're not. (laughs) So can you explain um, what you explained to me about the spectrum? Yeah. And so I, I, I guess I'm going to say this with, with respect to everybody who's, who's listening. And we all come from this from a different perspective. I come from it as a perspective of a clinical psychologist. So to diagnose a child with an autism spectrum disorder or ADHD, we have criteria um, in a manual called the DSM. And we go through that criteria to look at a certain number of symptoms that the children have. But the key thing is you only get a diagnosis of a neurodevelopmental disorder if it is a problem. So if it impairs clinical functioning, it has, sorry, impairs your functioning. So Mm. if it's impairing your ability occupationally, socially, um, you know, your ability academically, your ability to engage, if it's impairing um, your ability to do all of those things, then it becomes a clinical diagnosis. Now, that's a that's different from being a bit socially shy <laughs> or um, feeling that you're a bit socially awkward or yeah. um, being a bit obsessive. I mean, we're all a bit obsessive, particularly <laughs> academics. Um, it's it's different from it's different from that. It's um, and I I think um, when I'm talking to to families, um, they can often be offended by this notion that oh, we're all just like that because. Mm. Um, it, it's, it presents great challenges for yes, a family okay. and for their children. Yeah, And we are seeing quite a lot, like it is becoming more prevalent and it's those um, three um, developmental disorders, you know, we hear quite 
commonly now. Is it becoming more prevalent or do you think there's a lot of adults that are walking around with these conditions that weren't diagnosed back, say, 20-something years ago? Yeah. We, we, I think 20 years ago we were good at recognising children who had associated intellectual disability. There was Mm. clearly a developmental issue, but we weren't very good um, at diagnosing children who had normal intelligence, who had good language skills, um, and we were just sort of seeing them as odd children who didn't quite fit in and we weren't recognising the depths of their struggle and they weren't being diagnosed. And then what was happening is that we were seeing these young people as teenagers presenting with mental health problems. Um, or adults, so anxiety and depression because um, they've lived their life, um, you know, feeling like a square peg constantly being jammed into Mm. a round hole and you do that for 15 years and you're going to feel pretty down and and Mm. despondent um, if nobody's understanding you and the world world isn't changing to be the square hole that you need it to be. And Nicole, there's particularly with autism, there's been some research um, and talk into whether vaccinating um, can be linked to uh, autism in particular. What's your perspective on this and why do we hear so much about this now too? Well, I'm not even going to comment on that because it's just not true. (laughs) It's it's not a conversation. It's not true. There's no link. All right. No worries. Um, In 2013, you established the Deakin Child Study Centre with the aim of making a difference in the lives of those children affected. Tell us about this centre. So, as I said, the first part of my my first part of my career was um, trying to understand how we could better diagnose children with neurodevelopmental disorders. And in the 90s, we had brain imaging and EEG and all of these fancy neuroscientific techniques. And we learnt a lot about the clinical profile and we started to be able to recognise and diagnose children better, which is great because the earlier you're diagnosed, um, then the better chance you have of um, interventions and support that you need to live the best life you can. So that was great and that was great to be a part of that era of research Um, But then um, I realised as I was going into my clinic at the Melbourne Children's Clinic every Friday morning um, that the treatments that we had available weren't changing. The Mm. lives of these children weren't changing. So, yes, we could diagnose them and understand what their needs were, but there was absolutely nothing out there to support them. And so I literally picked up the phone to the head of school at Deakin University, who I knew, um, and I knew that Deakin University was very committed to research that um, was going to make an impact, a huge impact to the community. And I needed to partner with her and come and be a part of the university like Deakin because what I wanted to do um, was going to be very uber. I, you know, I I saw this, um, I went to an NHMRC um, meeting in... 2012 and um, they were talking about how we're going to change as a research nation and that we are going to move from you know just publishing our research and talking about it in scientific conferences um, but to creating platforms in Australia that truly translate research into the community and there was this one slide that went up that just hit me like a lightning bolt (laughs) It takes 17 years to translate 14% of original research to the benefit of patient care. So 17 years to translate 14% 
of original research to oh, the wow. benefit of patient care. So I saw that and went, gosh, I've got to get going here. <laughs> like we, you know, we can't, we can't keep doing this. Um, and then about that time I had my children, um, Catherine and Tom in 2004 and 2006 and having children inspires you in ways that you'll never, <laughs> never know. Um, and, and then um, I started to step outside of being um, in a hospital most of the time or a research lab and my kids um, grew up and then I did what every other family does <laughs> um, when they're about five and you step out into the community for the very first time into Auskirk and dance classes and it's terrifying as a new parent and all the new <laughs> stuff and you've got this new role in the community. Um, and so I did that and I remember the very first day I was there at Auskirk watching my son play um, and he was having just a joyous time and um, I looked around and realised there were no children with disabilities there. So all of mm. the research and all of the kids with autism and all of the work that we were doing um, there was no opportunity for these kids to play. Mm. Um, and so that was that was sort of my inspiration on an Auskirk field, <laughs> which I never <laughs> thought would be my inspiration to, <laughs> to um, do research that changed. So I, um, I then got in contact with um, the local Auskirk Centre and I said, and I've still got the email, hello, my <laughs> name is, and um, I want to know more about what the AFL's doing with disability. Yeah. And it took about two years of meetings and I eventually got a meeting at AFL House and met some incredible people in their community department um, who agreed to form a partnership with us to um, start what is now known as Allplay. Beautiful. And um, we were speaking briefly about that meeting that you that you went into with the AFL and took some deep breaths and yeah. tell us a little bit about that meeting. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, it's it's amazing as a researcher when you step outside of a lab in a hospital and step <laughs> into the real world. And I encourage every researcher to do that and to really think about the world problems that we're trying to solve. And we can only solve those world problems by connecting with the world and the people who can influence. Um, so the AFL is bigger than religion in Australia. <laughs> They're an enormous influencer. Yeah. Um, for, those, for those listening, it's the Australian Football League, if you're not sort of in Victoria or in <laughs> Australia, you're listening. <laughs> yes. Um, so, they're, so, they're, so as a researcher, though, that's absolutely terrifying. In fact, the first time I stepped foot at AFL House, I, I was just like a fish out of water. Um, and that was six years ago. And then um, more recently, I got to present what we'd achieved in six years to the AFL executive and sit next to Gil McLaughlin. And they said, I, I think I had eight minutes to tell what happened in the last six years. Um, but it was it was amazing. Um, so the it's okay to be terrified. Like um, I've got used to doing that. Um, mm. And um, what inspires me is I think about um, I think about children with disabilities, families who are looking after their children with disabilities, and how brave they have mm. to be every day to do basic things that we take for granted. So I figure if they can be brave every day and do what they're doing you know, I think I can do that too. So they inspire me <laughs> to take risks. That's beautiful. So you're pulling that courage from and, and sort of thinking to yourself, I'm doing it for them. If they can do it, I can do this. I can do this eight minutes, um, you know, where I've, I've, I've just got to pull it together. And and that's uh, that's beautiful inspiration. I absolutely love that. 
This episode is presented by Deakin University. You can find all of the show notes and other great content related to this chat at disruptor.deakin.edu.au or find us on socials at Deakin Research. So the All Play, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, the All Play. So it's it's a partnership between the AFL, Moose Toys and the National Disability Insurance Agency. So it's been described as the biggest game changer for children with a dis- disability in sport to date. So that's that's um, an amazing concept. And you came up with it just watching one of your kids play Auskick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought the world... And this is the great thing about stepping outside of the hospital in the lab, right? I thought this was all solved. I thought that if you had a child with a disability, you could just enrol them into Auskick, that there would be all the resources and information you needed, that the coaches would know what to do, mm. um, and that um, there was a there was a clear pathway, and that that different centres were set up to to look after kids with disability. I just thought the world was set up like that. And I realised it wasn't. So the first thing that we did is establish a, a toolkit mm. um, with um, tips and information for parents, coaches and children so that they um, can have those resources to know how to support a child or, um, you know, if they have a child, how to get involved. Anyone can go online. It's an open mm-hmm. access resource um, to allplay.org.au. And you can sign up and become, you know, part of the All Play community or Play Social Movement as we're talking about it. Um, if you're signing your child up to Auskick for the first time this year or next year, um, there, there'll be links that will link you back to the All Play resources. So as a parent, for example, you might want your child to be enrolled in Auskick, but they're too anxious and you don't have the tools to know how to help your child to overcome that anxiety and the coach mightn't have that information. So this provides all the resources and information in a very, very, very accessible way. Um, Mm. That was the other thing I learned in this journey um, was to get from the research in the lab to make a difference in the community. It wasn't about putting our journals online (laughs) or our books. (laughs) No one wants to read them. Um, And also nobody wants to hear from academics and psychologists. So we knew knew that. So when we set up the website, um, we thought about it from the perspective of a coach. Um, And a coach in Auskick is a volunteer parent in the community. So we designed it so in two seconds they could get information about anxiety. Um, It's all evidence-based. And um, one of the one of our colleagues in sports said to us, um, so how is that three-sentence tip that you're giving evidence-based? What do you mean by that? You know, what does that mean, researcher? <laughs> um, and I said, well, it, it's it's a very simple strategy that's going to help that child um, be able to play Auskick. But behind it is 10 PhDs. We read 26,000 papers <laughs> and we took all of that to distill it to the one thing you need to know mm. to make the world fit for all kids on that day. Do we see uh, a little a little bit more of an anxiety trait coming through with these developmental disorders as well? Fourfold risk. You know, they're, they're at greater risk for mental health problems. Um, if a child is diagnosed with autism, Um, they might have another disorder as well. They might have ADHD. Mm. They might have dyslexia. Um, They might have a mental health condition. Um, These are complex neurodevelopmental disorders um, and and they often present in a complex way. Mm. So um, sometimes, sometimes we're doing interventions to support the core autistic symptoms 
sometimes it's a specific intervention around anxiety, but anxiety is a huge one and mm. that can be the most um, debilitating symptom because when children become too overwhelmed and too anxious, they might start to avoid going to school, mm. avoid leaving the house. So I treat a lot of children who um, feel fearful just to leave their home. Um, home is safe, it's predictable, it's organised, they um, they know um, what's going to be on for lunch and what mm. their parents are going to do and say um, and so they're safe there. But um, left um, unmanaged, um, children can become quite homebound and, mm. and, and that's a very, very slippery slope. And so to come back to all play, if from a very early age children are having very good experiences in the community where the world is built for the children, where people understand them rather than stigmatise them or put them on the sidelines or worse still just lower the bar in expectation, um, you know, that, that, that that's, um, it can be quite life-changing. So these are very, I often say this isn't rocket science, it's just that, um, and, and there's a lot of great initiatives for inclusion around Australia and around the world, but where all play is different is that everything we do is research and evidence-backed. Mm. So we're very preci precise in the way that we're approaching it. Nicole, what other collaborations has all play explored? With our all play dance program, <laughs> um, we did a fantastic collaboration with the Queensland Ballet last year. And uh, I don't know if you know um, Li Xuanzing from, he's the artistic director and of Mao's Last Dancer fame, my favourite book and my mm -hmm. absolute, you know, hero. I, I've loved his story. I've, um, you know, love his incredible achievements as a, as a dancer. And so when we started All Play Dance, I said to the team, you know, this is all about excellence. You know, we are so sick of children with disability getting second rate. So excellence is the AFL, excellence is the CEO of the AFL being behind it. Mm. So what are we going to do for dance? And I said, it has to be the Queensland Ballet. It has to be Lee <laughs> Sing. So we, um, we had an initial conversation. We told them what had happened with the AFL and how successful the partnership had been. And their initial response was, wow, that sounds amazing, but. <laughs> but we're not disability experts. We don't. We don't have any expertise there. We, we, you know, not sure that we can be who you want us to be in this partnership. Mm. And um, we didn't hear from them for a little while and then they rang us back and they said, um, this is um, Felicity Mandel who's the Deputy Executive of the Queensland Ballet, and she said, if you take us by the hand and take us on this journey, we as Queensland Ballet will be all in. Mm. I tell you what, that was a moment. I just, I absolutely teared up. Did you do a up. little dance? <laughs> I did a little dance. I teared up. I sent an email to our All Play chair, Jonathan Wenegg, and I said, you can't, you know, it was a really long email. Yeah. And I said, I just can't believe this. This is, this, this, we've gone beyond football now. Mm. We're in the dance world. Um, and then there was another but and, the, and they <laughs> said, um, and Leash Wansi would love to come down and be involved. Can you have a whole program and everything set up in three months? <laughs> and we're like, sure, yeah. we're all play. we can do anything. Um, and, and then you're so, like, holy crap, we've got some work to do. <laughs> holy crap. I went, to our, I went to our dean, our executive dean, Brendan Crotty, and I said, we have an amazing opportunity here. 
um, this is going to be the start of something huge. Um, I'm going to need some money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to need about $30,000 to, to do this and to, um, mm. to set it up. And um, he said, sure, that sounds amazing. And, and so we got the money. We have um, one of our team members, um, Ebony Lindor, is an excellent dancer and a doctorate of clinical neuropsychology specialising <laughs> in disabilities. Oh, amazing. Wow, there you go. She's Perfect amazing. Fit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another colleague, Olivia Millard, um, is um, is also an elite dancer and expert in dance and dance teaching. <laughs> so we had our little team together, a little Uber research team, <laughs> and then we said, okay, so we've done a lot of work with children with autism. Um, all play is about the one in five children with developmental challenges or disabilities. Um, let's think about children with physical disabilities and let's create our next program for those children. Mm. So cerebral palsy was the first um, group that we thought of. So we put out an advertisement through Facebook and social media, um, hoping that we would get a couple of children responding. We needed 15 we had to shut it down within 24 <laughs> hours because the reaction from the community was so big. So we so we got 15 children um, with cerebral palsy and this, this was an interesting story and um, I like to tell this story because I think it reflects um, the community and how the community approaches disability um, and sometimes gets it wrong. Mm. And in this story, I get it wrong. Um, so... We, so we're up to that bit and then um, Ebony comes to me and um, she's just the most beautiful research fellow and colleague <laughs> and she sat down quietly and she said, so we've got we've got the 12 children with cerebral palsy. I'm like, that's fantastic and they're really keen to be in and that's great for this dance program that we're going to design for them. Um, and she said, I'm, I'm a bit worried though because um, some of the children have really significant extra medical needs and we're worried that the stress of it might you know, exasperate their epilepsy or, you know, we're worried we're going to do some harm. You know, we're worried, is our environment safe enough for these children to prosper? And I, and my reaction was, oh, yeah, no, maybe we can't. Maybe we can't do, no, we mightn't be able to include everybody. I actually said that. <laughs> we mightn't be able to include everybody. I'm not sure mm. we can. And um, Ebony was so polite. She said, oh, yes, no, we'll keep thinking about that. And then I went into another meeting and the topic came up again. And um, the team just turned to me and they're like, Nicole, we're all play. If we can't do it, if you're saying we can't do it, then how are we <laughs> expecting the community to do it? And I just went, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Like, <laughs> it was one of those horrible moments of yeah. I really wasn't thinking. Mm. And I'm like, of course we can do it. So we got our... We got paediatricians and we just we just made the world fit for the children. Mm. We just made sure that there was the medical support and everything the children needed. So um, the next part of it was um, we, and this was a new thing we were doing in All Play, we brought in um, teenage elite dancers from elite dance schools like the Victorian College of the Arts and um, Melbourne Theatre Company um, to be buddies for these children. Um, and each child that came in had two or three um, buddies um, who danced with them and taught them to dance. <laughs> and so these beautiful girls had given up their school holidays to come in um, and work with these children with cerebral palsy. Many of the children were, well, there was a variety of children. Some were in wheelchairs, some were able to walk um, and to teach them to dance since they did all of these these dance classes and then it accumulated into this amazing event where Li Xuanzing and the Queensland Ballet came down and they did a performance 
for them and the families and there was not a dry eye in the house. It was my favourite day of my whole life. As I was leaving, one of the directors of the elite ballet companies came up to me and literally hugged me and said, thank you so much. And I was like, oh, gosh, you know, thank you, because we couldn't have done this program without these beautiful elite dancers who came in to give their time um, to be part of the the teaching faculty for these kids. We couldn't have done it and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been the success it was. Mm. And he grabbed me. <laughs> I was like, oh, he's like, no, no, thank you, because these elite dancers live in this bubble yes. of perfection and worry and anxiety and this um, opened up for them this opened up a new world for them and it, it made them better dancers. And so I was just like, wow, Unbelievable. Okay. So it was having an effect on beyond what you could have ever imagined. Yeah. So there's all play AFL, there's all play dance. Is mm-hmm. there, what what's next? Are you thinking with all play or is, are there any other aspects to it? So we're about to launch all play learn in um, July mm-hmm. with the Department of Education, Victoria. So as we built these resources and tools for coaches and for dance teachers, the Department of Education said, wow, we'd like to come on and partner to have these tools also for teachers from kindergarten teachers through to adolescents in, into high school. Um, the vision for All Play is that um, we overcome one of the barriers for parents at the moment and that is the website is full of all of this information. It's hard to sift through. It's hard to know what's evidence-based. And even if you do find it, it's so hard to read. I was looking <laughs> at something online the other day about dyslexia and I, and I know a few things about disability and I was like, I don't understand what that means. Yeah. And so... Um, if you don't understand, none of us are going <laughs> to understand. Know. <laughs> I know. It's just it's, there's a lot of complex stuff out there. So yeah. with um, not everyone plays footy and does dance, but everyone goes to school. Mm-hmm. So we hope that from the time a child is diagnosed or identified as having a developmental disability, that paediatricians in the community will refer children to the All Play Learn website mm. from 12 months of age. They'll be able to get the resources and information and strategies they need for their child to thrive in those early years. And then the parents will be familiar with the website and the information and then they might go and do a dance class or do an Auskick or, um, and it will be in this sort of safe, trusted brand of all play. Mm, so that's the vision. Fantastic. Absolutely incredible. Nicole, I want to change tune slightly uh, now and talk about uh, your amazing TEDx talk. Uh, <laughs> and we'll link to this in uh, <laughs> in the show notes for our listeners that that do want to go and watch that. So you, you do speak about um, the all play uh, and autism further in this um, in this TEDx talk, mm-hmm. and you're really focusing around uh, something called inclusion, um, which you touched on briefly before. Mm-hmm. It's it really is a brilliant talk, by the way. I I absolutely loved it. Um, your delivery delivery was spot on. It was the most terrifying <laughs> fifteen minutes of my life. But thank you. <laughs> well, you couldn't tell at all. Can you explain to us your theory around inclusion and why it's so hard to sort of still figure this one out? Mm. Okay. Um, I think everybody wants to be inclusive in our community. Everybody wants to do the right thing, particularly by children. 
um, but they mightn't have the information and resources. And when people don't have information and resources, they go into the what we call do no harm phase <laughs> of I'll just do nothing um, mm. or it's too hard. Um, so giving that message um, that it's it's not hard, it's not rocket science, there are some simple accessible tools you can access that can promote inclusion um, is we think one of the important um, factors to, to break down those those barriers um, and understanding what a child's issues are mm. um, to be included. So um, let's let's just um, think about inclusion in a typical primary school. So um, little Johnny, who is typically developing, sitting in the classroom, finishing up maths and the bell goes and he's going to go get his lunch and, and play footy. So he jumps up, grabs his lunch, heads off to the playground, playing footy, having a ball with his mates. Child with autism is sitting in the classroom. They sit behind a social barrier, problems with social skills, a communication barrier. Mm. They don't always know how to join in or ask um, how to play something. But they also sit behind a motor barrier of inclusion. So 80% of children with autism also have motor problems, Mm. Um, coordination problems, throwing a ball, catching a ball. So if that child can get through those barriers to even get into the playground, they might not be able to get into the footy field, not because of their core autism symptoms, but because they have motor and neurological problems Mm. as well. So there's all these, there's all of these, so there's the barriers to inclusion about knowledge for the people who can promote inclusion, but there's barriers to inclusion around real deficits that these children have. Mm. And for the children themselves, you know, does it just come back to the fact that nothing beats good old human connection and something that we all crave no matter who we are. It's one of our strongest basic human instincts. We all want that connection. We all want to be included. Yeah, absolutely. And as everyone, everybody can relate to this and I think particularly in the modern era era of social media and feeling excluded, you know, mm. um, I know young teenagers will see something on Instagram or something where everyone got invited to a party and they didn't they didn't get invited. Mm. Um, imagine if that happened to you every single day for your whole life. Oh, yeah, you just, yeah. you can't imagine. It's, it's an know, awful feeling. Yeah. And what are some of your tips out there for parents who have children who come under the autism, Asperger's, AD, HD, AD, HD, ADHD <laughs> spectrum? Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of my tips is um, it's it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Mm. Um, so um, particularly for children with autism, they don't grow out of autism, they grow with it. And um, sometimes at the time of diagnosis, parents can be incredibly overwhelmed that if they don't do X, Y and Z within the first 12 months that they're somehow going to do more harm to their child um, and they can burn themselves out mm. um, early on. Um, so getting the right supports around them, um, good psychologists, good paediatricians um, to help them on their journey is really important. Mm. And what do you say to our listeners out there who feel maybe their child may have one of these developmental issues but they're not sure? Yeah, so your first um, port of call is to go to your local GP um, and the GP will provide referral information to a paediatrician and the paediatrician will bring a team around um, to, to do some assessment and to mm. follow up on the concern. 
Um, so that that's an important pathway. Um, there's a lot of um, important peak bodies, so a maze, um, previously known as Autism Victoria. They're an incredible advocacy service and um, wealth of information for families who want to connect in, maybe get some referral options. Mm, lovely. And Nicole, you've been all over the globe talking about neuromotor dysfunction in children with autism, Asperger's and ADHD. Where are you going? Are you going anywhere next or where to from here? Yes, yeah, so we've just come back from UCLA um, mm-hmm. working with our colleagues who are child neurologists over there and um, we're wanting all play to go global. So we've started a partnership with um, an incredible tennis program they've got over there called Acing Autism. Mm-hmm. And so we're bringing our knowledge and information and, and learning from their program um, to um work together um so that that's been fantastic and um that that conference was um another amazing week for us um we were very lucky to have a representation from the new york city ballet there queensland ballet and all the local peak disability bodies and inclusive bodies in america who came and attended Mm. so that was fantastic so i'll be going back there um in july to reconnect with my colleagues Um, And our major donor, Moose Toys, who has provided funding for this to happen, Mm. I think that's a really important point. Um, I think that's a really important point. I mean, we all, everyone strives to do research that matters and research that translates. Um, It it costs a lot of money Mm. and, um, and traditional funding pots don't cover it. So if it wasn't for our major donors, um, Moose Toys, um, people like Jonathan Wenig who support us in many ways, um, these programs wouldn't be possible. And Nicole, if you could change one thing about what's happening at the moment to ensure uh, a, a sort of smooth sailing into the future with uh, developmental issues that you've researched, what would that one thing be? That one thing would be um, bringing more people together, um, more peak bodies, more sporting bodies, more dance bodies, more education, um, all of the people that sit in the landscape of childhood and can change the lives of children, um, influence inclusion, um, bringing them together to work together um, so that we're not going off into different directions with the very precious resources that we have, the very precious pots of money that we have to make a difference. Um, rather than everybody going in different directions, having a cohesive evidence-based approach to inclusion and to supporting children with disabilities is absolutely critical. Otherwise, we will find ourselves reinventing wheels, Mm. um, doing little projects that um, don't get traction or that finish when the funding finishes. So we need um, sustainability and as researchers in this field, Um, We owe it to the community and we owe it to our donors to be thinking um, beyond what we're doing now, but how can we create um, commercial sustainability? So um, as an example of that with with Allplay, in addition to creating our resources that are open open to everybody, um, we'll be developing some particular disability professional programs um, that will be um, on a commercial licensing um, basis, um, not so we can make a lot of money, (laughs) but so that they can be self-sustaining and so we Mm. can keep improving those resources over time. So I think we need a a whole approach, um, Mm. a whole approach to this 
that would be my one thing. Amazing. We're so lucky to have you out there being an, an advocate and a researcher for this topic. Nicole, we've got a fast few questions to finish okay. off for you. Um, we just want your uh, first thing that comes to your head, your mm -hmm. quickest answer you can give us. Are you ready? Ready. Ready. All righty. What's the best piece of advice you've been given on your path to success? Take risks, um, push yourself harder than you can possibly think every day and then get up, peel your face off the pillow and do it again the next day. <laughs> Amazing. Is time really our most precious, unrenewable resource and why? Absolutely it is. As you get older, it goes faster. It is going to be June in a couple of weeks, someone I told know. me, and I said it's not, it's not possible. When I think about the children that we're seeing now, who are eight and playing Auskick, in 10 years they're going to be looking for a job. Um, we need all play work. We need to create our workplaces oh, for these wow, children. There you go. So, yes, time is very important. And the, the opportunities are endless with all play. Uh, if you could recommend one book to the younger generation to get them on the right path to ensure our Earth's future, what would that be? Just one book. I don't know. <laughs> I would have to ask Is my that children. Is the title? No. <laughs> I think I would have to ask my children. They're always um, following me around going, Mum, that shouldn't go in the recycling <laughs> bin. And I think uh, I think that's something our kids could tell us actually. Yeah. They're, they're much better at it than we are and there's fantastic things happening in schools um, around this topic. Uh, Nicole, lastly, if your life was a movie, what would it be called and who would star in it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some great answers to this, even your favourite movie. I'm just going to say the movie that inspired All Play Dance um, was Maya's Last Dancer. That was a book and a film. And when Lee Swanzing stood in front of um, the children with disability in the All Play mm. Dance program, um, he, and I don't know, if have you, do you know the story? He, he was um, from a very poor um, background in China and then went to the Houston Ballet and went on to become this amazing dancer and, you know, went through so much um, to be the best in the world. And so when he was talking to these young children with disabilities, he was saying that disadvantage comes in so many different forms and mm. he had a lot of it when he was growing up and um, he was inspiring them to, um, no matter what comes your way, just keep putting one foot in front of another and never give up on being the person that you want to be. Mm, so inspiring, Nicole. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. I have learnt so much. You're an absolute legend. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us on Change One Thing. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to review, subscribe and share with your friends.